Eleanor, this is a podcast of a conversation you had with Neela Vaswani at our Spotlight Lecture Series in May 2021. Hi, Rachel. Yes, we were launching my fourth novel called Marguerite's Harbor. It was published on April 20th by St. Martin's Press. And I was so, so happy that this event could be co-sponsored by the Portland Public Library and also by print books. These are both such valued and indispensable pillars of our community. And so I really thank you, Rachel, for being part of that. We were so psyched that you were part of the series. It was really nice to have a local author and a new book. And your conversation with Neela was so intimate and deep. And I think it sounds like you know each other quite well and respect each other's work. Yeah, we do. I I love the conversation with Neela. Uh, she's a terrific human being and a really wonderful writer. We're colleagues at Spalding University School for Creative and Professional Writing. That's where we met and we've become good friends over the years. And I really appreciated the depth of her questions. Yeah, it was a great conversation and we really appreciate both of your time. You were so generous with the conversation and I hope our podcast listeners will enjoy it as well. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. My name is Emily Russo, and I am the co-owner of Print a Bookstore in Portland, Maine. First, a huge thank you to our co-sponsor this evening, the Portland Public Library, for helping us promote this event. And now for our speakers. Neela Vaswani is the author of the short story collection, Where the Long Grass Bends, the mixed genre memoir, You Have Given Me a Country, the middle grade novel, Same Son Here, co-written with Silas House, and the picture book, This Is My Eye, for which she was the author and illustrator. She is the recipient of the American Book Award, a Penn O. Henry Prize, the Forward Book of the Year Gold Medal, the Italo Calvino Prize for Emerging Writers and other literary honors. Also an audiobook narrator, she received a Grammy for her narration of Aya Malala, How One Girl Stood Up for Education and Changed the World, and multiple Audis for other work. Eleanor Morris is the author of White Dog Fell from the Sky and An Unexpected Forest, which won the Independent Publishers Gold Medalist Award for Best Regional Fiction in the Northeast United States, and was selected as the winner of the Best Published Fiction by the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. Morris has taught in adult education programs, in prisons, and in university systems, both in Maine and in Southern Africa. She lives on Peaks Island here in Maine. Please join me in virtually welcoming Eleanor Morris and Neela Vaswani. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, we're honored that you're here, so thank you so much. And thanks to Emily Russo, who's the co-owner of um, Print Bookstore, and to Rachel Harkness, at the Portland Public Library who are co-sponsors of this event. So I just wanted to say a huge thankfulness to um, not only Print Bookstore and the library, but um, to indie bookstores and libraries all over this country. You know, in this dire year that we've just been through, where would we be without these wonderful institutions? And thank you for surviving. Um, please support either this indie bookstore or others in your neighborhood. A special thanks to Neela Vaswani, writer and human extraordinaire for being here with me tonight. We got together last week over Zoom. We hadn't seen each other in what, was it a year and a half or something? And we just kind of wept at each other for a while. So we said, we're gonna try not to do it tonight, but it's it's so good to be here with you, Neela. Neela's toddler and Emily's young kids are in the midst of bath and bedtime. And I've 
told them both that if the kids turn up, we're happy to see them. And my cat, Oscar, is also sitting over here. So he loves conversation. So you might see him or his tail or something too. <laughs> Never have the boundaries between work and home been so porous as they are this year. So we're glad to have anybody who turns up. Deep thanks to George Witte, my editor at St. Martin's Press, who's had been kind and smart and wise through the whole process of Marguerite's Harbor coming out into the world, and all those at St. Martin's who helped to bring the book out into the world, including those who are copy editing, promotion, and publicity, and Young Jin Lim, who made this beautiful cover. And thanks to um, Deborah Schneider, um, my indefatigable agent who found this wonderful home for Marguerite's Harbor. Thanks to Peaks Island community. I know there are many Peaks Island people here tonight, and um, this community is daily sustenance for heart and soul, and I'm so grateful to be here and to um, know all of you. And also, many thanks to the Spalding School of Creative and Professional Writing. I think there are both students and faculty here tonight. It's a wonderful place for nurturing writing and humans, and Neela and I met there, so um, it's wonderful for that reason as well. I want to thank comrades in writing and friends who have read this manuscript in its early stages. It's a better book because of each of you. I want to thank friends, close friends and family for your encouragement and enthusiasm and support. And I want to thank all of you who are here tonight and others who care about the written word and who value books and literature and are willing to be changed by what they read. So it's not enough to write a book. It needs you to um, to make a circle that completes through you and um, those of us who are writers. So thank you so much. So I'll be reading for about 10 minutes and then um, Neela and I are going to have a conversation and then we'll open it up to whoever has questions. So Emily will be back and help to field those questions. Just a little bit of background for those of you who haven't had a chance to read Marguerite's Harbor. The book spans 13 years from 1955 to 1968. And it's set in mid-coast Maine in a fictitious town called Burnt Harbor. There's six point of view characters in three generations. Marguerite is the oldest, the grandmother, and then there's a husband and wife and starts out with two children and then they have a third child. So they're all living, they all end up living under one roof. The book begins when Marguerite um, sets a pan on the stove and forgets it and burns her kitchen down. And she refuses to leave her house. So her family moved from Michigan to be with her in her farmhouse. And Liddy, the mother, is a professional cellist. And Harry, the father, is a history teacher. And then, as I said, three kids. And there's also a cat and a dog. So. I'll start with this reading. This is from the point of view of Marguerite. The family has moved into the house and um, she really doesn't completely understand what they're doing there. And um, she ends up talking to the oldest boy whose name is Bernie. They were a herd of locusts, worse, an occupying army. The girl cried, she was scared at night. She was a silly little thing 
and the two children fought by day, slammed doors, thundered through the house. It appeared to be more than a visit of a moving van came with boxes and more boxes. The bedrooms were full. This wasn't her idea. When you're old, you need quiet. You need the shadows of the day to fall over you softly. The wild geese had returned, as they have here, and settled down by the harbor. Marguerite heard them after dark through her open bedroom window. Their voices were urgent, the way the world began. They honked across the sky, barking like flying dogs. They brought tears to her eyes, remembering her mother's tears when the geese would return in the spring. What remained in her, Marguerite, were memories that no one cared about except her and maybe the boy who is living here now with the large <clears throat> dark eyes, her daughter's boy, at least that's who Liddy said he was. He asked her questions and she told him, I was born in Saskatchewan and my mother was born there and my father, Pearl Crow, was born there too. Saskatchewan is in Canada, a long way from here. Pearl is a girl's name, the boy with the dark eyes said. I ought to know the name of my own father, she said. That was his name. Men were named Pearl in those days. Hush now. After my parents married, my father couldn't find work. They had baby Marguerite, me, and they moved to the United States to upstate New York, where winters were dark and you could smell the cold coming over the Adirondacks. My mother said it was a pure smell, like a mountain spring. My father worked in the woods and my mother worked at home. And when her work was done, she walked to the lending library with me and brought back armloads of the great classics in a rucksack. She read Shakespeare to me. She expected great things, but there was no money for great things. When I was seven years old, my parents moved to Bath, Maine, where my father found a job working as a sternman on a lobster boat. He built most of this house with his own two hands and with the help of his brother who lived with us for a time. It was no bigger than a shed when we moved here. Why did you burn down the kitchen? The boy said. Did you think I meant to do that? So we'd have to move here. You thought I wanted that? Because you were all by yourself and you were losing your brains. I like being by myself. And do you like being not all by yourself now? No. They were sitting in the living room, Bernie on the round piano stool with the wrought iron legs, and she next to him. He twirled around on the stool and the stool did a heavy little gallop. Do you want us to go away? Why, do you want to go back home, she asked. We can't, we sold the house. Some other people are living there now. He looked at her. Why are your teeth all scraggly, like a witch? I used to like to chew ice, but I don't do it anymore. It got expensive. Let me give you a piece of advice. Never start the habit, it's a hard one to break. Worse than a smoking habit. Don't ever start that either. So your teeth broke just like that. Just like that. Crack, crunch. Did you ever have a husband? Three of them. The first one died. <clears throat> he fell off a tall building. Although some people say he jumped. I'll never know. The second one was Mr. Irving Bright. Irving grew up in the Bronx. Do you know where that is? It's in New York. You're a smart boy. Yes, I am. Irving was a smart boy too, but he was very impractical growing up in New York. He knew nothing about cars. He didn't even know how to drive when I first met him. I had to drive him everywhere. I did the tune-ups and oil changes. And when winter set in, 
I lay flat on the frozen ground in the shed out there with my head beside the tire of the car and wrestled the chains onto the bald tires so the car could climb the hill to the main road. Traction is a very important thing. She said it again for emphasis. What's traction? Like a tractor? Don't interrupt, I'm telling you something. I was good behind a wheel. Irving was lousy with cars, but he was a fine man anyway, and we loved each other. Where is he now? Under the ground. He was 17 years older than me. He worked in a shoe factory. Then he was a day laborer. The work took a lot out of him. He was a handsome man, an amorous man. I'm not telling you what that means. I know what it means. What, what does it mean? I don't know. Irving was a good father. Liddy was 15 when he died. Peter was 13 and Willard was 11 years old. My mother, Liddy? Are you Liddy's boy? She peered at him and went on. I didn't know what to do after Irving died. I was so sad. She was quiet a moment. I didn't know what to do when you kids were in school. I wasn't with you, Grandma. You're talking about someone else. When you were in school after your father died, I used to drive a long ways and come home before the bus dropped you off. Sometimes I didn't make it home in time. One day I almost thought I wouldn't come home at all. <clears throat> While I was driving, I sang songs that Irving and I used to sing together. Pistol Pack and Mama, Some Enchanted Evening. You know that one? No. Some enchanted evening, she sang. You may see us you don't know how to sing, do you, Grandma? I used to sing just fine, but it's the breath, boy. And I'm not your grandma. The breath gets thinner, like mountain air. But that doesn't matter. It's the thought that counts. You mustn't be afraid of sentimental, romantic things. Bernie did another couple of fast rotations on the piano stool. As it jumped toward the wall, he put his foot out to keep him from hitting it. He left a footprint in the middle of the lilac wallpaper. He put his hands on either side of the bench and made one slow twirl. So that was two husbands. Then there was Everett Hawking who worked at the bank and he said he'd like to marry me. And he did marry me. And Mrs. Bright became Mrs. Hawking. Mrs. Hawking had more money than Mrs. Bright. But if Mrs. Bright had been standing at the top of the stairs of happiness, she tumbled right down to the bottom with Mr. Hawking. Where's Mr. Hawking? Did you get a divorce? He died just in time, shoveling snow. He must have had a heart condition. He looked strong with his big chest, but he wasn't. He was a clumsy, rumbling man, an old goat. He cleared his throat a lot, as though he was about to say something important, but he never did. We had nine years together. He belched after dinner and pontificated. Do you know what pontificated means? No. He was boring, but he didn't know how boring he was, like a show-off. I know some show-offs, said Bernie. Sometimes I'm a show-off. It's hard to love a show-off. I couldn't bear to look at Mr. Hawking after a couple of years. I asked Liddy what I should do, and she told me to leave him, but I didn't. But then he left me all of a sudden. Heart attack. My name is Mrs. Bright again. I didn't feel bad about losing Mr. Hawking, but I felt bad for other reasons, and I said to Liddy, that maybe I killed him by not loving him enough. And Liddy told me I was crazy. She said he was an impossible man to love and he just died, that was all. If you don't love someone enough, you can kill them. 
Some people would say no, but I think you can. What do you think? I think you can, but it doesn't work that way with your sister, only someone you're supposed to love. You're not supposed to love your sister? Not really. Well, let me tell you one thing. When you grow up, don't you ever try to love someone you don't love and don't ever try to not love someone you do love. Don't ever forget that. You hear me? Eleanor, <laughs> how am I not going to just cry and cry? That was so beautiful. Oh, thank you. I was thinking about how you always awaken tenderness in me and in everyone who's listening to you or reading your words off the page. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Neela. And thanks, thanks to all of you for being here. And thank you, Eleanor, for writing this brilliant novel. And as Eleanor was saying, we've known and loved one another for, I think it's been about 15 years now. And we met at Spalding's Brief Residency MFA in Writing Program, where we both teach. And one of the many, just so many joys in my life have come from just talking and laughing and, and being with Eleanor. Mm-hmm. So I'm having trouble not calling you Anu, which is what my toddler has named Eleanor. And I've always thought if a baby recognizes you as a unique and special person who deserves a unique and special name, that it, it must be true. And <laughs> Thank you, Neela. Eleanor is not only one of my nearest and dearest, but she's also someone I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for as a writer and a human being. And I know that everybody who knows her feels this way because she just makes the world a better place with her presence and her words. So Eleanor, (laughs) there is something liquid about your prose, liquid in a musical way. It's not just the words and the language that are singing, but the pacing and the tone and the rhythm and the pauses. You make writing look easy, but we both know that it is not. (laughs) So could you share with us some of your challenges along the way in writing Marguerite's Harbor? I'm thinking in particular about what you mentioned, balancing three generations in under 400 pages, which is quite a feat. And how did you move between and through the six different narrative voices? I've never really written about a family before. And it was something that I, I wanted to try to capture. And I think that writing this book made me realize how even more complicated families are than I already knew. There's some kind of crazy mathematical formula that tells you how many relationships there are. If there's six people, which there are in this book, and there turns out there are 15 different relationships if there are six people. So to capture each of those people and each of those relationships was complicated. And the other thing that was tricky and made me not quite trust the book as I was writing it some of the, for some of the time. Well, that's always true of every book I write. But in the case of this book, because families have, there's six different trajectories with six people and six different storylines. And then there's the storyline of, of the entire family as well. So how do you, how do you keep the whole thing rolling and the, the story moving forward without it feeling fragmented? And it was important to me to try to capture that sense of kaleidoscopic, the way that families are. But I thought, well, what I always think, is anybody going to be interested in this? But the other the other part of it is that will people lose the thread and will they be able to keep rolling through? 
I think that that became apparent when it was time to, well, it was already apparent, but um, the choosing of a title at the end, a title that would fit one person wouldn't fit another person or the whole family. And so it was really a puzzle what to call this book. And my wonderful agent, who I just realized I didn't properly thank Deborah Schneider, who's a remarkable person and found this wonderful press for the book. But it was um, Deborah Schneider that came up with the final title. It was going to be called Burnt Harbor. And we were kind of a little unsure of that. And then she she said, well, Marguerite is at the center of a five-pointed star, and so call it Marguerite's Harbor. And that seemed to fit. Marguerite, by the way, was going to be a, a minor character. And as you can hear in what I just read, she said, no way, I'm not going to be a minor character. She elbowed her way to the center of the book, and um, that's where she stayed. So did you know the point of view before you began, or did you have to find it as you went along? And I was going to ask you if there, if you always knew it was going to be, I think Robin Lippincott describes it as polyphonic in one of the blurbs on the back of the book. Did you always know that, or did you have to kind of find your way to that? No, I didn't. I'm a kind of a scrambly person the way I create books. I don't create books by outline and don't know where they're going. And books start in different ways. Some start with a character, some start with an image. This book, I think, started partly with an idea, which was how the 60s was similar to much of what we have been dealing with here in this decade. So I, I began with that idea, and then one by one, the characters added themselves and finally began to come together as a family. But um, I think Bernie was actually the first character who came to me. I saw him, I think it was in a short story that never went anywhere, but he was he was in a field and he had this sort of glumpy walk, and I could just see the back of his head, and it was sort of, his hair was sort of sticking up the way a kid's hair does at the age of 11 or 12. And I, I saw him very strongly and I saw his walk and his name came to me. Um, so he was a first character, but um, one by one they arrived. And it's important to me when I write that I don't push characters around. I mean, it's kind of like real life. If, you know, as as friends, I wouldn't want to tell you what to do. Well, you're very strong anyway, and I would know better, but but people don't like to be told what to do and characters don't either. They tend to flatten out and get stereotypical if you try to pop them into little categories. So the hardest part about writing for me is is in the beginning where they haven't yet fully gotten their voice and they haven't fully taken over because once they have, then then we're in kind of a partnership and I follow them and listen to their stories and it gets a lot easier. But until that time, I'm kind of wandering around the wilderness and so are they. Well, it's worth it. Bernie is one of my favorite characters. I never I never knew before what you just shared, that he was one of the first people who came to you. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And also, I've always loved the title because there's something really brilliant about it in terms of POV to me too, because it has a third person feel in this very subtle way, which just brings everything together. So you were you were just speaking a little bit towards 
the then and the now. And I think so much of what you take on in this book is resonating right now thematically and in terms of people's individual experiences and our country's collective experience. And I've heard you describe that resonance yourself as uh, seeing through the lens of then in connection with, for example, the Vietnam War and race and sexuality, et cetera. So I'm wondering how did current events and recent history feed and shape the book and how did you manage to avoid polemics as you dove into politics? Mm-hmm. A big question. I think the resonance has to do partly with, during the war, the um, rifts between people were so deep. And I remember not wanting to talk to anybody who was for the war because it just felt so impossible that you would want to be for the war. I wasn't curious about people who were in favor of the war. and. Um, They probably weren't curious about me either. And it was a hard thing to every day be confronted with the terrible things that were happening in our name across the world, the bombings and the children being hurt and everybody being hurt and millions of Vietnamese people losing their lives and 65,000 Americans and the amount of money that was being spent. So that was very much in my head. But also what was in my head was the, were the lies that were being told by our government. And I think that, um, you know, maybe it was my own innocence or maybe it was the 50s that was more innocent than the 60s. It's hard to separate out because I was young in the 50s and saw things through that innocent lens. Of course, there was McCarthy then. But the war was a terrible, terrible thing in the same way that there were outrages now and lies now that seem to have deepened, you know, if you don't like, I mean, if a truth is inconvenient, then tell a different truth that that isn't really a truth, but sounds like a truth. So that that kind of got me going. And I, you know, Harry is a character in the book that's a history teacher, and he represents in the book, part of what is the worst about my polemical self, because he gets going in his classroom sometimes and just can't stop himself in the same way that I can't stop myself. And it divides people and pushes people away. But I was very aware of him as a character doing that and trying not to do that myself as a writer, hoping that that the other, other characters in the book were moderating that. One of Bernie's friends ends up joining the Air Force. That's a big part of Bernie's life toward the end of the book. So... I don't know, you asked a sort of multi-layered question. Did I answer any of it? Yes, you you answered all of it and then some. I guess for the people out there who are more craft-minded, I guess I was also asking, how did you manage to avoid polemics as you dove into politics? Maybe could you say a little more about that? Yeah, I think that polemics come from not going deeply enough, both in, in real life and also in fiction. And as soon as you're able to get under the surface of characters and what they believe, I mean, it's, it's important for me not to speak for my characters, for this to be something that's that's in partnership with them. And it's tempting to put one's voice inside a character. But I I try to catch myself doing that. And as soon as a character goes deep enough, as soon as they become real and not not cardboard caricatures, you can begin to see why they believe what they believe and where it comes from. And that's what I was aiming for in the book, not 
this is right, this is wrong, can't you see? It's important to me in the process of writing that I not insult my readers in any way. And part of that means writing in such a way that that I trust readers to figure things out for themselves, to make a, a scene vivid enough or a character vivid enough that a reader can make up their own mind about what they think about something. And I think that's the other way to avoid polemics is to get get the heck out of the way. You know, both Stephen King's written a wonderful book on, on writing and so is E.B. White, and both of them are really death on adverbs. And part of why that is, is that adverbs are tell a reader what to think. You know, he looked at her aggressively or she longingly thought about whatever it was she was thinking about. But the minute you've got the L-Y, you're telling a reader what to think. So I I try wherever possible to let characters speak for themselves. And I mean, obviously my voice is there, but I try not to be a manipulative kind of voice and try to make make them vivid and scenes vivid enough that readers can be inside a book rather than inside whatever I think. There are a lot of scenes that are very poignantly painful to read in the book, and I'm not, I don't want to get into them because I don't want to give anything away, but it's hard human stuff like death and betrayal and distance and divisions and loss. So how do you keep your balance as a writer and as a person when you're writing difficult scenes? Yeah, sometimes I don't. I, I don't keep my balance. As I said, I don't plan out a book by by outline. And so sometimes a character's trajectory will be heading in a direction that I don't want them to go in. I mean, I, I do love most of my characters, not every single one, but I don't want them to suffer. I don't plant things in the book that's going to make them suffer, but they head in directions that are kind of, I don't want to say random, but it fits with their story. And um, I've had the experience of trying to pull them back from the brink and say, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Let's have a different outcome here. And, but it feels as though when I do that, that the integrity of the book is compromised and I have to let them go in whatever direction they're going to go in. I don't believe in gratuitous violence in books, but I do believe in telling the truth about life. And I hope people who read the book will see that there's a lot of joy in this book and some humor. And there's also things that aren't so joyful. There's a marriage that has some of the the hiccups and difficulties uh, along the way that that most marriages have. And there are things that happen to characters that I didn't really want to have happen. So when I see something, when I see a scene coming that I know, oh God, I've got to write this. It's hard sometimes. Sometimes I go and play the piano, which is wordless and it takes me to a different place, but it matters to me to tell the truth about life and about the world and not to be trivial in the way that I write. Edwidge, I don't know how many of you know um, Edwidge Danticott's writing, which I adore her her writing. She said, I wrote it down just thinking that I might be able to say it to you. She said, write as though every story is our last. And then she said, 
what would you say to a dying person that would not enrage with its triviality, that would not enrage with its triviality? Isn't that wonderful? And I think that all of us who write have that have that um, responsibility to to tell the truth about the world. And that's where I try to go if there's a, a hard scene that try to go toward an honest place. But it isn't easy. I care about my characters even after a book is finished and I, you know, imagine what they're doing. So they don't just act like pawns and puppets. I do truly care about them and I care about bad things that happen to them in the same way that I would happen in the real world. Um, so. So I guess the answer is that I don't always stay balanced. Thank God for that. Yeah. (laughs) How about you? How would you say about, what would you say about that with your own writing? I definitely don't stay balanced either. (laughs) I'm all over the place. But I did see from the bookstore that we only have time for one more quick question. So Mm -hmm. is that okay? Can I ask you one more? Yes. Okay. (laughs) But I Uh, want to hear about... A little bit about you too. Well, I definitely don't stay balanced. I would answer in much the same way that you did. And that I do, I find the place in me that has resistance to what's hard. And I just try to soften it. And I usually, when I'm afraid to write something, it comes out very flat on the page, a difficult scene. And that's when I know in revision, as I look back at it, okay, it's, it's time to be brave, go deeper And like you, I'll go to music or I'll take a walk outside. I'll do something to feed and help and nurture the fear so that I I can go back in and face it. But then I often just make a great big sloppy mess and and have to revise and revise my way to clarity, but also to to truth, like Mm -hmm. you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you said about revision is so important. Revision is probably the most important thing that we do as writers, because with every revision, we do go deeper and we get closer to the the heart of what a stories and characters are trying to say. Without that, we'd still be skittering along the surface. So you have one more question. I do. I have like a thousand more questions, but I will just ask you one more question, which is, I guess, well, the question sort of came from me feeling like this book of yours, I'm not just a fan of this book and you as a person, but all of your work. And I feel like this book of yours is kind of set closest to home in terms of location. And I know that Botswana was also a home to you at one point in your life, but your last book, White Dog Fell from the Sky, which everyone should read as well, was set a continent away from where you were writing. And this one feels more connected to where you live in the now. So that was that one thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading and rereading and reloving the book, Marguerite's Harbor. I guess from there or around there, could you talk about your earlier books versus this one and the difference in who you are as a writer then and now? Mm-hmm. I think it, as a younger writer, a lot of the struggle was simply finding time to write. And you have a toddler, Neela, and you know what I'm talking about every day. And when I was writing, it was just... Oh, I've got two hours, you know, I'm just going to go for it. Um, and I was in more of a hurry. The haste was definitely there. And I think I wasn't as brave as I am now. I've experienced things in the world that um, I hadn't experienced yet. I remember once saying in my younger years, there's nothing that I regret. I mean, what a silly thing to say. There's so much that I can think of to regret, not in a way that 
it says you stupid idiot, but just not enough of something or too much of something. Um, and that's that's life. So the the depth comes from all sorts of directions. I remember saying to, to somebody once who was in a period in their life where they weren't able to write that nothing really gets lost. The fact of living, your writing is getting deeper every day, no matter what. And I hope that's true with, with my books. There's no book in the past that I could write now because I was in a certain place when I wrote it. When I wrote um, An Unexpected Forest, I was recently in love. You know, so there's kind of a whoopee feel about that book. This year that we've just been through has been, you know, we've all been battered and bruised by this year. And with with what's happened in the world, we've we've taken on the the truth of Black Lives Matter in yet again a new way, in a way that people were unable to take in, take on truly in the 60s when it's a, sort of hard to describe this, but I think with every every passing year, new things happen and one gets deeper and wider and understands the world more in a vaster way. And I understand history differently. So I couldn't replicate those books now. And um, I love everything that um, ended up being in the world. I feel fondly towards them all, but... Um, Every part of my life has created something new. So there's oh, Emily. The, yes, I'm so sorry to interrupt. What's, what's been no. an absolutely amazing conversation. But mm. oh my goodness, do we have audience questions? And I'm going to apologize <laughs> in advance. We may not be able to get through all of them, but I'm going to um, keep this going for as, for as long as possible and try to get through absolutely as many as we can. Um, so the first one, Eleanor, um, comes from, this was actually one that was emailed to me several hours before the event. So I wanted to make sure that I got to it from Pat Houston. Uh, music is of critical importance for both Liddy and Eva. And you portray that aspect of each of them with such sensitivity that it seems clear you share their passion. Could you please talk a little bit about the role music plays for you as a writer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I played the piano since I was five years old and feel really fortunate that um, my parents were not only musical, but they were also readers and um, loved the written word. Um, but music has um, has been part of my life forever. I mean, I can't really remember a, a time when it's not. Downstairs, there's an old piano that I started playing when I was five years old, and it's it's a granny now and and needs she needs quite a lot of work but um it's always it's always been there and i think there's so much music in in words in the way that we speak and how our voices rise and fall and uh it's always been important to me to think about the way sentences rise and fall and how they they follow one another so it's it's definitely there and i mentioned to neela a couple minutes ago that when I get stuck, I go to music as a as a wordless place. And I think that that musicians um they capture emotion so wonderfully without words. And um I'm I'm not a musician and early on I realized I'm I'm not good at performing. And there's a actually there's a chapter in the book that's fairly close to life of uh, Eva at a at a recital. Um a, disastrous recital that um, 
pretty much happened to me. I don't tend to write autobiographical work all, all that closely, but um, yeah, that that chapter was horror. Yeah, it describes something horrible. But music, <laughs> when I wasn't playing a recital, is um, is something that's just in me. And I love the song of birds and um, the sound of the wind. And it's just um, I so I tried to bring that into books. And I think. Um, Chopin's Garden, which was an early book, also has a musician in it. So my kids both played, um, my kids who I think are here, um, both played um, stringed instruments. Um, my brother played the oboe, my other brother played the, the piano. So, And my father had a wonderful deep bass voice that went plummeting right down to the, the bottom. My mother had a gorgeous soprano voice. So it's just in me. Well, your, your description of music being, in, in a way, lyrical is a great segue to the next question, which is um, from Evan, who I think says from Connecticut. Um, your dialogue is wonderful. Do you have a favorite writer who you like their approach to dialogue that you channel? Oh, my goodness. Um, there's so many wonderful writers. I grew up on a lot of Russian novels. I think particularly Chekhov. He catches the way people speak, the way people are, um, and the natural world, which is a kind of dialogue between people as well. Um, and um, I don't know if there's any one person, but I think that it's the same kind of thing as listening for a music, you know, the music in, in words that I I hear it in my head. I hear dialogue in my head. I don't, as I write, I can actually hear people speaking. And if it feels false, then it has to go. So, but sometimes I don't catch that falseness until later. Um, I don't read everything out loud, but it's in, it's being played in my head. So thanks for that question, Evan. All right, another one from um, Tom and Rita Malloy. Um, Eleanor, when writing, what is your schedule? And when you rewrite, do you do the rewriting by scene, by chapter, or just through the whole manuscript? Uh-huh. Both Tom and Rita are writers themselves, so thanks for that <laughs> question. Um, uh, alas, I don't have a schedule. I'm a really random kind of person. I have to do something in the morning that's physical, even if it's sweeping the floor or something, you know, shoveling snow or feeding the birds or I need to get my body going um, first thing. So that's that's necessary, but I don't have a schedule. And um, when I revise, I guess the beginnings, the beginnings of books are revised more than any other part because I'm trying to get characters established, trying to understand who they are, trying to hear their voices and so I go over the beginnings over and over and over again. And once they get going, um, things, I still revise a lot, but um, not probably as much. So it isn't by, it isn't by scene or chapter. It's just over and over and over again. As I said before, revision really, really matters. Um, actually, a question coming in from New Zealand. Um, yeah, I, I know. I mean, it's it's the one it's the one amazing thing about Zoom is that as much as I all wish we were in one room together at print to do this in person, um, having somebody attend from New Zealand is pretty cool. 
Mm-hmm. Um, did you live in a three generation family? And so I think they mean, did you live in a, in a house specifically with, with three generations of, of people? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, just, just two generations and cats and dogs. Um, but I, I did know all four of my grandparents and I've, I've known quite a few people in the generation that Marguerite's in. It didn't happen to our family, but would have been interesting. Thank you so much for um, from New Zealand. And I, yeah, and I did want to say that in the beginning that it is so interesting that there are people who I know from different parts of my life. And if if we were not in the pandemic time, I would be seeing people, you know, from Kentucky here and from Portland, Maine over here. Um, but it's really remarkable to have, I think my 90 plus year old aunt and uncle from California are here and they wouldn't be able to be here otherwise. Zoom's a very weird thing and we're probably all sick of Zoom, but it's it's wonderful in that respect. So thank you. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's going to entirely go away. It's it's really opened up some interesting doors. I think for bookstores and for events. So even even when we are back in person, to be able to to live stream something like this, so um, we can get you know a different we can we can have an even larger audience, and it, and it's not restricted to those who can who can make it to the to the store. So it's it's really opening some some great doors for us. Does your passion and need to write come from influential family members or authors or just from within yourself alone? Mm-hmm. My mother loved words. She was a wordsmith and she was probably my first, she was my first writing teacher. If I got all tangled up in a paper that I had to write for school, she'd say, well, what are you trying to say? And um, say it, say it out loud and say it clearly and, and now write that down. And so she was, she was a great one for getting rid of useless words and not, you know, writing clearly and not um, not trying to be somebody that you're not when you write. Um, she was a, a wonderful writer in that way. Um, she never wrote fiction that I know of, or maybe she did, but I I never saw any of it. Um, my father was was also a, a lover of words. He was a he he read all his life, even when he was partially blind. He found ways to read, and um, was really important to him. And he. He was a real truth teller with his words, and he was fierce about telling the truth with with words. And so I I think early on, you know, the combination of who they were and the books in our house and everything really made a difference to, I just couldn't imagine not caring about words and in that sense. And in terms of larger family, there were a lot of mathematicians and scientists who had a lot of skepticism about, you know, what is what is real, and um, and researchers and people who were interested in figuring things out, and um, that's percolated into me as well. Um, but I think it's, I definitely thank my parents for a lot of um, a lot of my love of writing and reading. I wanted to say. Um, I didn't answer that question very well on on dialogue. And um, if you're interested in a reading list, I've got a really, a list of books that I love. And you can go to my website, www.eleanormorris.com and um, just send me a 
a note and I'll send you a reading list if you're interested. Um, so Eleanor, another question from Elizabeth. Um, when you're dealing with uh, something objectively wrong, for example, murder, how do you keep from having static murders? Is that what you were talking about earlier with polemics? How do you keep from having what kind of murders? Static? <laughs> static. static. Like very, I guess, I, I'm guessing one dimensional. Oh, one dimensional murders. I've never, have I ever murdered anybody? Oh, maybe that's coming next. Say the first part of that question again, too. I got hung up on the word static. Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, when you're dealing with something objectively wrong, for example, murder, and, and I yeah. think what the, the questioner is getting at, you know, the, what they probably believe was the Vietnam, the Vietnam War was very wrong. How do you keep from having a static murder? How do you keep it from being one dimensional? Is that what you were talking about earlier with polemics? Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, yeah. I apologize in advance if I got that completely wrong, but I think that was the, I think that yeah. was the basis for the question. Yeah, I think it's what I said. Um, you know, trying to go underneath, go deeper. And um, I worked in prisons for quite a number of years, um, teaching writing and also teaching conflict resolution. And I mean, I knew this before, but I really knew it after being with um, people who were in prison, both men and women, um, that that people are not, that they're not the same as the worst thing that they've committed. And there are usually reasons why a person will do what they do. And if you go deeply enough, that begins to make sense. And I'm not saying that every single person can be a sympathetic character or that you even want that to happen, but I, I don't, I try not to run, um, although occasionally a villain does appear in a book, um, but I try I try not to write villains because that isn't true of life either. So um, I, I hope that partially answers that question. It certainly did for me. I think that, that was a beautiful answer and I, I, I can imagine my that. My cat's trying working. to get my lap. <laughs> um, yes, I can imagine um, that you know, working in the prison system that you, you, you would come up, you would have that takeaway. My, there's a, a lyric to a song that my sister told me about, which is, you know, it, it's impossible to hate somebody whose story, you know, and you just, anytime I get really, really angry with somebody, um, I try to kind of remember that, that you don't, you don't necessarily know that person. You don't know their story and you don't know why people do the mm -hmm. things that they do necessarily. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think so. I, Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, going back to Neela's question from earlier, I think I've gotten more more forgiving in some ways than I was as a hot-headed youth, um, where, you know, right and wrong were so obvious to me, and uh, there were fewer shades of gray, so I'm not talking about those kinds of shades of gray, but um, no, but it's, life's, life's more complicated now, and there's still right and wrong, but um, but it's uh, it's it's just more complica complicated. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we've got time for maybe two more, um, and I, I think they're still coming in. So, folks, I apologize profusely if I'm not going to get to all of these here tonight. I, in fact, I know I won't get to all of these tonight. Um, is the character of Marguerite based on one person or a compilation of of persons whom you knew? Uh huh. Let me just say, if we don't get to all the questions, people are welcome to write to me as well through the website or 
my email address. Marguerite's a, um, a compilation and um, I don't have a close, a really, really close family member who was in the same position as Marguerite, but I got to know very well a, a, a woman by marriage. Um, she was married to my cousin's, my mother's cousin. Her father had been killed by Stalin and she had had a very harrowing, um, har harrowing life. And in her later years, that life came back to her and um, she became more and more dissociated from where we are now. And um, so I think she was, she was kind of the precursor for Marguerite, but Marguerite's a much sunnier person than that person I've just described. And, um, and has a lot of robust life in her still, even though her mind is is um, confused often. So I th I think um, a lot of it was imagining rather than a, a person, but the precursor was the person that I was te just telling you about. There was another great one about, yes. Have you personally experienced all of the tactile things you describe in your book? I love this question. For example, you could smell the cold coming over the Adirondacks and the autumn slanted wistful light. How can you remember all of those experiences to describe them so well? Huh. I don't think I've, no, I never experienced the Adirondacks, um, the cold, but I've experienced cold for sure. And um, I think part of, Part of trying to make, trying to write in a way that people are inside a book that I've written um, means trying to get closer to the the sensory part of life. I think by by nature I'm a more abstract person, and I've learned over the years to try to be a writer that creates sensory. Um, you know, real sensory experience for a, a reader. And um, so that's part of where my imagining goes and where, you know, going back to Neela talking about revision, um, part of where revision goes is adding details once I've imagined things for myself. It's become really important to me to include the natural world and the sensory part of who we are as humans. All right. I actually, it's, I could be wrong, but I think we actually have one more um, question here, um, which is how did it feel to write a book immersed in Maine? Hmm. Well, I love Maine. Um, so I think two out of three of my other books were written outside of Maine. And I decided for this one, I wanted to come home to something that was really familiar. As I said, I don't tend to write highly autobiographical fiction. And I didn't want this to be that, although there's a certain scenes that are quite close to stuff that I remember, but not not a huge number of them. But being, um, being in Maine and writing Maine was a, a true pleasure. It's a, it isn't a, a state where I grew up, but I'm so grateful that it's become my home and a deep home. Um, and Peaks Island is is a, a community that's a deep community for me too. So that was a pleasure, even though I wasn't writing about where I'm living, I was writing about a fictitious place, but it 
it was a, it was a pleasure coming home to this beautiful state. Um, well, I think that is the perfect note to end this on. Um, the chat has been very active. Thank you for, for everything tonight. Thank you to everyone who attended. Um, we had almost 200 people here tonight, which is just absolutely enthralling and, and wonderful. We're, we're, we're so happy. And again, um, for everyone, if you're, if you're, if I missed your question, I'm so sorry. Eleanor has very kindly offered to answer your questions. If you email her, um, I dropped the, the link in the chat, just eleanormorris.com. Um, so again, thank you both for a wonderful conversation. Thank you all for attending and have a wonderful, wonderful night. I would like to say, Emily, thank you so much for your questions and huge thanks to Neela for being here uh-huh. from New Love York. You, Eleanor, thank you so much. Thank you, Print. Yeah, and, and the I'm, library. And I'm so honored that all of you came as participants. So it's a huge honor. So thank you so much. Thank you all. Bye. Good night. Love you. Bye-bye.